As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. That is something I would advise to my 10-year-old self to get in quicker. So that kind of increase your trajectory a lot more and shorten mm-hmm. the time that you have to suffer through trying arrow. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E, you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. 
For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Elisa Zen. How you doing, Elisa? Doing good. Thank you so much, Joe, for having me on here. Big fan of the show. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I'm grateful that you're on the show. Elisa quit her W-2 in November 2019 to go full-time in syndication and education, and she's got 11 years of experience in real estate. Her portfolio consists of eight properties as a general partner. That's over 1,000 units in Phoenix and Dallas. She also passively invests in an additional 1,000 units, and she is based in Seattle, Washington. With that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. So I grew up in China, actually, and then moved to Canada and then moved to Seattle and landed a tech job. And as a lot of our Seattleite are, and from there, we invested with using our savings into single family to start with. And very quickly figured out that we should be doing cash flow game instead and moved into multifamily space self-managed fourplexes and et cetera to start with, and then moved into larger multifamily from then. So that's kind of a little background on me. Okay. What was your last W-2 position? My last W-2 position, it's the same as it always being for 13 years, is a product manager position or program manager position in a high-tech company. Mm -hmm. And what were you doing exactly? Oh, so I was responsible for strategic thinking about where the product should be going after, but it's also a technical background. So I have a computer engineering background and I basically call it herding cats work, Mm -hmm. basically Uh making sure that my vision is realized in a much smaller scale. And that was a little bit painful because as you kind of move up more to senior position in a large corporation, politics kind of get in the way. So 80% of my time, I feel like it's not serving the customer in the best interest. And also you just kind of working on a corporation world, which is why I kind of started doing real estate, doing a side business, because what you create when you're becoming your own boss, you see that direct impact. So that is super exciting for me versus kind of grinding in a nine to five. The skills that you used in your W-2, what skills have you found that you've used the most mm-hmm. in what you're doing now? I think it actually transitions very well. And I was just about to write an article about that is the project management skill actually translate fantastically into real estate because we also know, Joe, I'm sure you know, when you have constructions, when you have lease up, all these steps that you're doing, there's a lot of follow-ups. Like there's a lot of driving everybody to make sure everybody's on the same page, not rolling all over the places. So I think that skill is very helpful in terms of asset management, as well as raising money. Because when you're raising money, you're coordinating with hundreds of people like you're doing. So that requires a lot of herding cats per se. So that skill set was really helpful. Also, the strategic thinking part was really helpful in terms of just being the boss of your own company. Then you kind of have that vision of where you want to go. So all in all, I was kind of surprised when I transitioned kind of over. I was like, wow, my W-2 job kind of paved the way to what I do now, even though it's completely different career path. And it's one thing to understand, yes, my skill set translates from 
W2 to entrepreneurial syndication, real estate investing. It's another to tactically see, here's some things that I'm doing that others aren't doing because I have the skill set. So what are some examples of some tactical things that you do that perhaps others don't do, but they probably should because they don't have your skill set? Mm, using technology, I would say, because in the high-tech software company, there is, I'm not sure if our listeners are familiar with this method called Agile Methodology, which basically it's, you're basically dividing up developments into a small, short cycle. Some are one week, some are two weeks. The idea is that you're scoping the work so that it can get done within that week and then making progress moving forward. So that skill set was really helpful in terms of applying that agile methodology in project management, in constructions, in lease of management. And actually, I'm glad you asked this, Joe. Recently, we've been using some of the software programs I have been using when I was working on high tech, like Asana as a project management tools. We've been using it and Slack in terms of communication with team member and also just kind of evaluating software to make running up the project a lot smoother. There's another program that we usually now use. It's called a NOC CRM. I actually learned about that when one of my coworkers was interviewed for the software. So mm-hmm. then I digged into a little bit more and all our property is using NOC CRM right now to efficientize the communications between tenants and the staffs, all that stuff and cutting down times spending on that and also increasing lease conversions because techs are very high in conversion in terms of sales. So all these slowly coming back in my life. <laughs> <laughs> as far as agile methodology, I've got it pulled up on Google. Is there mm-hmm. a book that you'd recommend on that? Uh, if not, that's fine. We, I, yeah. we can just do Google searches. I do not because it's just okay. work. You experience. just knew it. Yeah. It's like you were trained on that a while ago and then knock... CRM is just K-N-O-C-K-C-R-M.com. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your journey now a little bit, now that we talked about some tactics that could be helpful for the listeners. So your portfolio, eight properties as a general partner, and then you've got passive investments in a thousand units as a limited partner. What came first? I imagine the limited partner stuff, but please educate us. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely the limited partner stuff. But before then, we were managing our own small multifamily. So that kind of has paved what a little bit size? background. So we started with four plexes. We bought a couple and then I got bored. So I was like, hey, we got to go a little bit bigger. So we bought 12 units, 10 units, small multifamily. They're actually very, very handful. I'm sure you can attest to it. Smaller properties usually requires more hands-on from the asset manager because the teams are not as professional. And then from there, we learn about investing to larger multifamily. And the decision came in because I live in Washington. Our property was local before. So in 2017, we noticed that we can no longer buy local properties, even small apartment buildings. So I spent a whole year going to three meetups a week, try to look for a deal. But what I found was knowledge. And then from there, I felt comfortable enough, made it enough of a networking, was enough of a professional, felt comfortable enough to kind of move out of state in investing. And then I just thought going out of state, I need to go a little larger in order to be able to scalable. So that's 
hence the decision getting into the larger multifamily. And then from there, we passively invested a few deals, get to know people and got invited into one deal as general partner. You went from four units to 12 unit to 10 unit. What are some challenges that you didn't think you'd come across on those 12 and 10 units that you did come across? I did a lot of education before them too, just kind of listen to podcasts, your show, Bigger Pockets and all that stuff. So I would say the biggest hurdle was financial, which is lending, because from a four unit to a bigger than four unit, you're crossing the boundary of residential lending to Mm -hmm. commercial lending. So that first loan, you're like the best child nobody wants. (laughs) It's very difficult to beg anyone to get you onto the first loan. Back then, I didn't really understand the partnering up concept. Nobody ever told me. So you're just hitting your head on the break over here over again until someone tell you, yeah, we can take you, which is a local credit union. So we did get financed down on that property in particular with a commercial loan, but that is after the first credit union got it all the way through and fell through on the 11th hour. And then that person then introduced us to another credit union locally and got it done. So it was definitely a very interesting journey. That was very difficult. The other part of it is I took out one partner that was intentional. We had enough capital, but we know that after this property, if we want to grow more, we'll probably need to take out mm-hmm. a couple more partners. So we were putting a majority of the money and that's perceived a lower risk for an investor. So we just kind of went ahead and took on one partner who is my colleague at the time and then kind of went there. And he's still my investor to this day, one of my best investors. You said we took on one partner. Who's we? Oh, I always say we because me and my husband, mm-hmm. but really like I being embarking on the thing by myself. Uh, <laughs> once it's past the fourplex, because he was basically doing the birth strategy on our fourplex. So he was renovating and I was managing. But once we go beyond the fourplex and also went a little bit further away, he's just kind of stepping back from that mm-hmm. role because he can't be renovating them anymore. Does he have a W-2 job? He does not. So I am a single income. (laughs) Our household has always been a single income household. I get paid pretty well with my high tech job. So he didn't really have a full-time job. So that was his job, which was working for us. Now his job is full-time watching out for our kids. There we go. There we go. (laughs) Which is a full-time job. Absolutely. (laughs) That's for sure. Absolutely. 12 units, 10 units. Um, Did you exit out of those? Yes. The first one we bought, the 12 unit, we sold it in a year and a half and basically brought a 100% profit to our investor and ourselves. And then we 1031 into what we call a tenant in common deal, partner with two other people in Phoenix into a 36 unit in Phoenix. And we're actually selling that a year and a half later out of that thing and making about 80% profit as well. Nice. Well, that mm-hmm. sounds outstanding. So that was your first foray into anything larger than 12 units, that 32 unit. From a limited partner standpoint, how many deals did you invest in on the LP side before you were on the GP side? I have to kind of think about it. I think it may be three to four or so. It really kind of happened really rapidly because I had a solo 401k account. At the time, I also left my job 
I was going through a job transition three years ago, and I was able to use that money and moved it into a solo 401k account. And then that's the money that I can't really touch. And it's not really doing too much. So I used that to passively invest in a deal and that free up my cash to do the offers as active partners. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the LP investments first, then we'll talk about the GP stuff. Yeah. From an LP side, what questions did you ask the general partner or what research did you do prior to investing with them? I really went by a person approach. Every single investment I made, I knew the person individually. And also I looked at their past track record. I think that was really important. I'm more a people person. So that was kind of important for me. And other things I looked at is I also took some education with CCIM courses. So understood how IRRs and all the other calculation happens. So when I look at underwriting, I would say maybe a little more sophisticated than average LPs. And I look at rental income growth and I look at reversion caps. And I also look at how feasible the business plan really is. And they looks like a properties that has a lot of cash flow and had pretty good cushion in terms of how much they're raising in terms of reserves compared to their projects. So at that point, it just kind of clicked, especially also I had a small apartment experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew saw on the business plan, what that looked like. They weren't crazy in terms of rent increases, et cetera, even if it is, then there's a very slow step up. That is what I'm kind of looking at. Yeah. And will you elaborate on the rental growth a little bit more on what would be a red flag? Maybe we'll approach it Mm -hmm. that way. So over the years, I've become more experienced with that. So on my first deal, when I evaluated, I was just simply looking at the market rent growth and want to make sure that matches with what the migration pattern looked like. For example, Texas back then, in Dallas, you can probably underwrite a 3% rent growth because that matches with the report. But later on, the market has matured a little bit, so that rent growth has slowed down a little bit. So that's the stuff that I was kind of looking at and all the other incomes and et cetera. Now, recently, by doing deal myself, I came to this conclusion. Also, recently, the market has changed. It's not as peachy looking. So when I'm kind of looking at Basically, total income is what I look now because at the end of the day is how much you are increasing in total mm. in terms of income. And then what your tenant can kind of weather, it doesn't matter if it's other income that increase or is the rent income that increases. There's ways that you can structure it. Obviously, I would encourage people to do, but at the end of the day, they're going to see what is the bottom line when they pay the rent. So that total income now just become my metrics on what's the increase over there. I think reason market, we should probably conservatively looking at them as first year. I don't want to see anything over 2% on total income increase, which is super conservative because when you're considering a lot of value add projects, there's intrinsically maybe 10 or 20% rent growth that, that just by implementing the market, even with a discount. And now second year, I'm looking at less than maybe 3% increase. And then the third year and fourth year, I have a pretty optimistic view on that because I think inflation is going to pick up. So over then I'm okay to look at up to a 10% increase. That's kind of the projects I'm looking currently using the current market. It's interesting that you're talking about now that you've been on the GP side, 
you've seen some other ways to increase income to help influence that. What are some things that you're seeing now? Well, now increase is really difficult because we're in the middle of pandemic, and I think by the time this episode aired, we'll probably still be in it. So it's about preservation of the income. But what we noticed is even on our property that we were doing is previously we had a plans on doing upgrades, and we were hitting them before the corona time. And then as soon as that pandemic happened, we noticed the demand for updated units a lot less. People rather looking for amenities such as、uh, washer and dryer in unit. That's a huge one, especially in Phoenix market. You almost command sixty dollars to a hundred dollar increase depends on where you live, and then it's a lot cheaper actually to put that in compared to doing the full upgrade. In Phoenix market, because the labor is pretty expensive over there, you can probably get away with a four thousand dollar. That's if you have to dig hole on your wall and actually adding the connection itself. So that ROI is actually a lot higher right now because people don't want to go to public place to do laundry. This and that. Also, Amazon lockbox on like a slightly better class property because again the convenience is very big. So more amenities now. That's way to kind of increase the income versus just the traditional upgrades. That's kind of what we notice in this particular market. Previously, obviously, by just updating the units, I think oftentimes we can hit the market rents that we wanted. What deals lost the most amount of money? Well, there's one deal that we are closing on the 23rd hour. It fell apart, and we lost thirty thousand dollars in that, and that's all our own money. So that was the first syndication or temp that we put together. So I had a partner in Mississippi that we found this tertiary market. Hindsight's probably a good thing that we didn't go forward. Everything has lined up. We found the investors because that was our first deal ever. We found the experienced GP to sign up with us. All that sort of stuff. It was very challenging. Every single step of the way was very difficult because we tried to do it ourselves with no mentors. But we got it done. Crossed the line. On the twenty third hour, our lawyer in Mississippi is a non escrow state, which means your lawyer does all your closing. And our lawyer is not as experienced as she led us to believe. So, <laughs> so she took extra time because I'm in Washington State and etc. So doing all these background checks. So she took one extra day, and then we went back to the seller. And this is a direct to seller deal,、mm-hmm. and negotiated with him. And then said, "Hey, we just need one more day extension to get the rate lock done, and we're good." And the seller turns around and said, "No, I want to hike up ten percent on purchase price." I'm like, "What? Who does that?" We can't do that because we had investor money in there, so we had to say no. And then we tried to save the deal last minute, negotiate with him, but the seller was just not cooperating. So,、mm. as such, we have to walk away from the deal. And we didn't have a lot of hard earnest money in, which is good, but we lost all the expenses that's associated with it. It's about thirty thousand dollars that we lost over there. How many units was it? It was only fifty units. Hindsight is probably good. We didn't get into it because it was literally in a tertiary, if not like a quadrupary market. Okay. Do you know what happened to that property? He still owns it. Really? <laughs> yes. Huh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what deal has made you personally the most money to date? That's a good question because I have to kind of go through my head. It's a toss-up between actually the fourplex in my small apartment buildings, which is kind of funny because some of the deals that we're still in the cycle for for the larger apartment, which is why it's not really comparable. 
But hey, I would say in four years, we have through 1031, that 12 unit, have quadrupled our equity gain over there. And then we're doing yet another 1031. So we transferred a 300K to a $1.2 million in three years. That's a pretty good gain, I think. Other ones, I would say the fourplexes that we did multiple burrs on them. So we pulled all our original capital out of it three times. And it's still cash flow $1,000 per complex, which is pretty good. Yeah. Let's take a step back. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I would say get out and do it and also get a mentor. We kind of struggle as I shared a story about that Vicksburg deal. At the time, if I had a coach or someone mentoring me on this, then we could have probably more creative maneuvers of that Mm -hmm. or better negotiation tactics, right? Or getting access to better networks and this and that. So I think that is something I would advise to my 10-year-old self to get in quicker. So that kind of increase your trajectory a lot more and shorten Mm -hmm. the time that you have to suffer through try and error. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. All right. First quick word from our best ever partners. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin' Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at www.dwellin.com forward slash show. That's dwellynn.com forward slash show. What's the best ever way you like to give back to the community? I have started a university called Easy FI University. I like to kind of teach other people what I do and show them there's multiple different ways to reach their financial freedom. So this is a one way that I'm giving back right now. And I'm actually also working on my charity strategies to figure out causes that are really passionate to me to giving back to the community by donating. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? They can go to www.easyfiuniversity.com to check us out. Thank you so much for being on the show, talking about your background, your journey, and how you have gone from the fourplex to now general partner on eight deals. And the lessons learned on the 12 unit and the 10 unit in terms of lending and bringing on a partner, even though you really didn't need one, but you saw that it would be beneficial for you to have one in the future that you have a proven track record with. And I think that's very valuable insight, especially for those who are starting out. Thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Joe.